You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together we We'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hi, everyone. Good day. We are going to be talking today to someone who's actually, I'm going to say, burst onto the history and broadcast scene. Yes. Quite recently, and so so chuffed to have you in, Esme Louis James. Now, look, for those of you who have been living in a cave and haven't heard of Esme, she's a writer, a researcher, a social media phenomena. Yes. <laughs> Two and a half million TikTok followers, mate. Seriously, that, I mean, that's, that's a city. That's a city that follows you. But you've got a new book out called Kinky History. And it's also being accompanied by the Kinky History Podcast produced by our good mates here. At Batuta, exactly. Yeah, the DM Podcast Network. And look, in her own words, she is writing kinky sex back into the history pages. <laughs> and I should point out, too, that your history podcast mm-hmm. is being sponsored by a place that sells sex toys. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> now, welcome, Esme. Thank you so much for that warm and hilarious <laughs> welcome. What a great start. <laughs> now, i um, what we're going to do is we've asked Esme to pick a, a hero from history and a howler. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start with the hero, and Paul's already looking at me because he knows I'm terrified of. What am I terrified of, Paul? Well, another French name, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, yeah, Mikey does love a name. Do you want me to give it to you or are you going to have a go? I'm going to have a crack, mate. Right. Julie, Julie Dubini. Julie uh, Dobini, yeah. Julie I'll Dobini. take that. I'll take that. What do you reckon, Esme? Um, look, I mean, I can't even say that my pronunciation would be 10 out of 10, but uh, Julie Dobigny. Julie Ooh, Dobigny. Oh, I that's like nice. that. That's, that's good. Very good. That's, good. <laughs> that's very good. Now, uh, before we get into her story, I have to admit, thank you so much for you know, basically letting me discover her, because I had not heard of this woman before. Mm-hmm. She was a, well, most famous for being a soprano singer in, in the opera. But, Paul, you wanted to actually talk about women in theatre at that time. Well, that's right, because we're in the 17th and 18th centuries mm-hmm. now, aren't we, Esme? You know, this is a lady who probably, if you don't know her name, you might have heard of Mademoiselle Maupin or La Maupin. But to be honest, like Mikey says, she's not one of those massive names no. from history at all, is she? And she's almost a contemporary to Nell Gwynne, mm-hmm. who everybody's heard of. Yes. Yes. You know, and now you've got a French um, contemporary who virtually no one's heard of. You know, everyone's mm-hmm. heard of the Marquis de Sade. Everyone's heard of all the <laughs> blokes to do with this story. Yes. But no one's heard of the female. So I was really, really pleased when you said you're going to pick her as a hero because I think she should be a hero, you know, compared, particularly compared to Nell Gwynne. Well, actually, speaking of Nell Gwynne, mm-hmm. Should I tell my Nell Gwynn story now before we start? I want to hear it. Yes, please. Uh, okay, now, look, as we all know, Nell Gwynn was probably one of the most famous stage performers of her time and one of Charles II's courtesans is the word mm-hmm. they liked. But what is often forgotten is she was in arch rivalry with another woman called Moll Davis. Mm. Now, the difference between Nell and Moll was Moll was, well, she was from a working class background, mm-hmm. but she did become a favourite of King Charles. Now, I'm going to have to be careful how I tell this story. <laughs> Nell was not happy about uh, Moll spending the night with Charles II. I mean, it is Charles II. Yeah, it's Charles II, not Charles III. Please <laughs> make yeah. sure you're right on this oh, one. Oh, no, has this happened before? Oh, well, yeah, this has happened before, actually, yes. And I'm, I'm going to quote from Captain Alexander in his 1716 book. So it's written about oh, 27 years after this happened. 
And the book is called The School of Venus or Cupid Restored to Sight, mm-hmm. being a history of cockolds and cockold makers. Mm. <laughs> Nell Gwynn, having noticed that Miss Davis was to be entertained at night by the king in his bedchamber, she invited the lady to a, a collation of sweetmeats, which having been made up with the physical ingredients, which... um. Okay. It was a powerful laxative called Jallop at the time. So Nell Gwynn's invited Mole Round before she meets Charles II for a bit of rumpy pumpy for some tea and laxative cakes. As you do. <laughs> As you do. Um, okay. And there was a problem. Yes. I'm going I'm, I'm to, once again, it's safer if I quote. When the king was caressing her in the amorous sport of Venus, that a violent and sudden looseness occurred, <laughs> obliging her ladyship to discharge her artillery. She made the king as well of herself into a most lamentable pickle. Ooh. And after that, she was given a house, a pension, and was never seen at court again. So, <laughs> sex, which actually gets to the point that sexual intrigue, particularly between royalty and the theatre, mm-hmm. was happening in England. So, you talk about Julie and her life in France. Yes. But, but the interesting, interesting thing about Julie, too, was even when you're a researcher, mm-hmm. it's separating what's real. The facts and fiction, yeah. Yeah, and, and the myth. So, Absolutely. So, you want to give us a bit of background about Julie? Julie Dobigny is one of the most interesting figures in history because of how clouded she is in speculation and Mm. rumour and Mm. myth and legend. But to summarise her, she is a bisexual, sword-fighting opera singer of the 17th, 18th century. And now mm. that is a wonderful combination of careers to have. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, I mean, seriously, it must be really hard to have to fill out a tax return. No, honestly. But I think, you know, when, when we come across her, she sounds more like she should be like a Dungeons and Dragons figure <laughs> than she, you know, is a real person. Yeah. But, you know, the facts of her life is that she does pursue all of these various careers. Mm. Um, and now Julie comes from a very well-to-do family. You know, her father um, was the secretary um and the master of horse to King Louis. Now, I'm worried about my Roman numerals now. Uh, uh, King Louis XIV, yeah. I believe. Oh, that's right. <laughs> hey, we've, we've, we've talked about his behaviour before. Well, that's it. We talked yes. about in the progeny yeah. episode, didn't we, with Louis XIV, the Sun King. You know, obviously, so it really is a key critical epoch, isn't it, in, in mm-hmm. French history that she is a big player in. Massively so. You know, there's a lot happening in this time. Maybe this is why her story has kind of, you know, gone under wraps for so many years. But, um, you know, she comes from this very well-to-do family and her dad, who was working as a secretary as well to uh, Louis Laurent at the time, uh, Julie starts her sexual experience uh, with having an affair with Louis himself. Mm. And very quickly, she's educated in the art of horse riding and fencing by her dad. Well, her dad was actually, if you correct me if I'm wrong, her dad was actually quite a skilled swords person. He is, yes. yes, yes. And so he trains all of the court pages as well in the art of sword fighting. And at the age of 12, he also teaches Julie mm. um, how to, you know, fight and defend herself and basically raises her as one of the boys. Mm. Um, so by the time she's 14 and she starts this affair with Louis, who her dad's the secretary for, and she ends up uh, getting married and becomes La Maupin, she is a incredibly successful, trained Spencer. Now, you mentioned her husband, this Lama Pan guy. Now, he's one of the great cuckolds of history. According to some accounts, the day after the wedding, he gets sent off to the provinces to become a tax collector. Yes. 
That's right, because you've got to remember, so she's having an affair with the dad's boss, yes, but she's actually married someone else. Yes, and it's actually the Count who organises this marriage and does it quite strategically. So he organises uh, this marriage to the Mopan, and uh, when he very quickly is sent away, the Count keeps her in Paris for his own purposes. Mm. And so they continue their affair for a while until Julie falls in love with her fencing master and instructor. Ah. And in a moment that, again, I think only happens in fan fiction, her fencing instructor is then uh, accused of having killed a man in a duel and the two of them have to run away and flee in exile together Mm. where they then make their money dueling in public teaching classes and performing in town fairs for many years is there one story that in one of these fencing demonstrations she does they won't because she is dressed as a man but they won't believe she's a woman so she has to actually Take her shirt off. Yes, yes. There's, so this is one of those stories that you just like, you don't know if there's fact or fiction because there's so many different retellings of this. But for nearly all of her life, Julie dressed as a man but didn't disguise the fact that she's a woman, which is a really interesting thing today to think about, mm. like in cross-dressing history. Mm. Yeah. But one man mistook her as a man and just refused to believe that she was really a woman because she was so good. Mm. And basically she fights him near to the death, mm. reveals that she's a woman, and then they start a long-term affair together because he falls in love with her. <laughs> Another affair. Yeah, well, well, it's another well, affair. Well, actually, there, there are some because you talk about the difference between the, the myth and the reality. There are some versions of that story where mm-hmm. she actually really wounds him, yes. nurses him back, back to, to hell, <laughs> and then they fall in love. Yes. <laughs> so this is we, we're now into the sort of the theatrical part of her mm. career, aren't we? I think she's down in the south of France by now. She's doing yeah, Marseille or somewhere around there, isn't she? Yes, it? she gets down to the south of France um, and around this time she reclaims her name as solely um, Mademoiselle La Mopin, which is her husband's name. And it was very conventional in uh, like the opera scene at the time that you would take on Mademoiselle whether or not you were married. Well, that was going to be my question. as well. Yeah, how, because, you know, we're now in the late 17th century. Mm-hmm. How common was it for women to be on the stage whether it's opera or obviously yeah, we've gone past the Shakespeare period mm-hmm, we've no longer mm-hmm. got the boys dressing up as women for the women <laughs> parts but yeah was it very unusual for her to be a big name or a big theatre star like you know in mm-hmm. England we've got a few coming through a few women like Nell Grimm but you know it's not yes. is, was it the same in France? I think what we've the most important thing to remember is that theatre while it's attached to glitz and glamour had a lot of very negative connotations Mm. around these times. There is not a big difference in France or England in the 17th, 18th century being a theatre performer or an opera performer and being a courtesan. These things really kind of went hand in hand and while you could get acclaim and be you know, at one stage she's described uh, by uh, Le Marquis de uh, Dobegnu as the most incredible singer that he's ever heard in his memoirs. At the same time being a performer was the same as prostituting yourself mm, mm. Um, in these views. There's one difference between her, though, and, and the other women on, on the stage at, mm-hmm. at, at, at the French Opera. They all performed under the name as Mademoiselle, yes. whereas she was Madame. She was Madame for a really long time, and interestingly enough, when she was Madame, she took on her maiden name. So she remained Madame uh, Daubigny, um, mm. and then when she later on takes on the, in, when she gets to the south of France and she becomes Mademoiselle, she becomes Mademoiselle La Maupin. Mm. So she is playing with these uh, assumptions about marriage and gender 
all uh, along the way and very deliberately as well. Mm. You know, she's going on stage performing in these beautiful dresses and uh, then coming off and uh, fighting people in duels outside mm. of the theatre quite famously when someone criticised her for not being a good soprano. That's, that was <laughs> exactly, because that was going to be my other question there. So if, yes, women were more commonly found on stage, yeah, they'd made mm. their mark. But yeah, in terms of cross-dressing, in terms of you know, transvestites, that kind of thing, yes. and the sexuality, mm-hmm. how unusual is this? You know, we, you know, we've had homosexual lesbians since ancient times. We know that they existed, and I, I presume transvestites and trans mm-hmm. people existed as well, even if they you know, didn't publicize the fact. Where were we, like, in terms of the you know, 17th, 18th mm-hmm. century, how completely unusual was it, or was it not so unusual in the, in the theatre world? This was incredibly unusual. Right. You know, weirdly enough, France actually didn't take away their rule that women can't wear pants until the 1970s because they forgot to take away that law. Right. But, you know, you go 200 years uh, into the future when we get to, like, Richard, who is another very comparable mm. figure to Julie, who was a French cross-dresser and a woman who wouldn't disguise the fact she's a woman and wore pants. And Richard was constantly arrested Mm. and having to apply for police permission to be allowed to wear pants and this is you know how many more years in the future into the 19th century so for Julie to do it and to get away with it to the level that she did like she when she is in the south of France and making a living by herself which is also very very controversial and uh, very bold of her Mm. she's also bringing herself into uh, fencing schools and these gentlemen clubs Mm. she gets herself acceptance and refuses Was she accepted by her family, Esme? What did her her dad have to say about it? There's not a lot of record, which Mm. kind of implies no. We do know that very early on, before she ran away with her fencing instructor, uh, she fell in love with a woman and uh, who was a gentlewoman, and Julie tries to run away with her female lover, and then gets arrested and charged for kidnapping a noble woman. And interestingly enough, she's charged as a man. Yes. Because the magistrate wouldn't believe. Yes. Because, because is it, correct me if I'm wrong, the woman she falls in love with, her family sends her to a convent. Yeah. And yeah. so Julie pretends to be a postulate, which I had to look that up. That's someone who wants to be a nun. She sneaks into the convent. And then an old nun dies. They put the dead nun in <laughs> Julie's uh, lover's bed. Then the two of them sneak off. But the magistrate refused to believe that a woman would kidnap another woman. And a gentlewoman. And it, it goes further than that. Allegedly, she also burnt down the convent. Oh, right. Wow. So after she's planted the dead nun in uh, her girlfriend's bed, she burns down the convent to uh, escape with her and is then found and returned by her dad at one stage. And that's basically the last we hear of her dad in her story at 14 after Julie burns down a convent. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, seriously, I thought Wednesday was wild. <laughs> It's got to touch the Wednesdays to her. Uh, honestly, I, I I believe she's probably like the inspiration for a lot of the Wednesday Adams characters. Now, uh, but the, the other thing too is, you know, we, you know, we, we talk about, you know, she comes from a noble family. She you know, she, she conquers the, you know, the Parisian state. Mm-hmm. But it's not a clear trajectory. You know, her no. life her life is a constant battle. Well, you, you mentioned the duels. Dueling by this stage was illegal in France. So yes. she's 
constantly having to flee for her own safety. Constantly. And I mean, it's probably something to acknowledge that she did come from a very wealthy family and mm. to uh, connections to great power. So she does have uh, her... her ability to do this um, is very much access to yeah. any of this you know to, to, to living quite openly with women to being able to cross dress to being able to fence as a woman um, and even to be able to perform on the opera stage which would have been very controversial for a gentle woman to do uh, because of its connections to sex work you know all of this is basically allowed because she had a stipend of sorts and you know she has her connections to mm. wealth and mm. power but I think it's for that reason we probably don't know a lot of the details of her story because if she did come from this family, a lot of the records would have been destroyed to protect the legacy of the family. Uh, well, yes, you're right. Also, too, I think at least on two occasions, I know one comes from Louis Fourteenth, but she is given pardons from, from yes. very, very powerful people within French society. That's and daddy's connections. That's right, yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, you mentioned the legacy because mm-hmm. it doesn't, all end particularly well, does it? No. I mean, ironically, after burning down a convent, uh, Julie (laughs) reportedly uh, ends up retiring to a convent in her final days, having fallen in love with um, another woman. Uh, Madame de la Marquise de la France. Beautiful. All right, all right, all right. But but, but this this madame was considered the most beautiful woman in France. She was. was, In fact, she was besotted by the the, the doe farmers besotted with her. Yes, yes. And the thing I I also, there's one story I do like, which is this madame's husband was described <laughs> as the most foolish man in France. <laughs> Cockles all over. Yeah. So, Cockles, oh, what a fantastic name for a movie. Cockles <laughs> all over. But that's the thing, because the two of them run away, and it mm-hmm. does seem for like the last two years of her life, she has this really full-blown, quite mm-hmm. fulfilling relationship yes. with Madame Le, Le Marquis de Florensac. But then she dies of scarlet fever, I think. She does. And very it's very soon after that uh, Julie um, passes away herself. You know, she lives hard and fast. She dies by 33. That's, I know. That's something really interesting. She dies really young. You know, Nell Gwynn died in her 30s too, didn't she? The other person mm-hmm. I always think of is Edith Piaf. You know, yes, yeah, yeah. She yes. sort of reminds me of like a 300 years beforehand. Um, but they all die very young. Yeah, maybe that's the only way to make history. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's the thing too. Uh, there's one last story I, I want to finish with. Is you know She is sort of half myth, half real. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Yet there have been operas written about her. There have been some, some novels. There's been a short film... There's one idea which I think would have been perfect. Apparently, sometime around about the middle of the last century, Greta Garbo was cast to play her. Yeah. And the movie never happened. Ah. Mm. I mean, I think just to kind of summarise a lot of Julie's life and why it's important, you know, when we go back through history, we obviously have a, a great lack of female figures, but... She becomes this hero because of the myth and the legend in a lot of ways. Um, Because we don't know the facts of her life, when we are looking back through history trying to find someone to look up to and someone who could be a marker for queer identity or, Mm. you know, women's rights, we can kind of imbue her with a lot of those legend and uh, heroistic qualities, you know. And that's why I think she's so important, I mean, overall, she's a fascinating character. Whether, whether it's you know, it's part myth or reality, I don't really care what the mix is. Mm-hmm. Is she well known today amongst amongst the trans and queer community? Is she held up as a hero, as a modern day hero, you know, for the mm-hmm. people today? 
I think she's starting to become reclaimed. Uh, you know, it will take a quick Google search to see that there is now a lot of blog posts and a lot of interest in this mythical figure. And I think that's needed. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of figures who can fill these gaps in identity throughout the ages. And if we know of someone who is this bisexual woman who is very proud and loud in her identity, then mm. we need to um, uphold her. And, and celebrate it. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Thanks, Esme. Now stick around because we're going to do your howler next. Okay, folks, listen to Heroes and Howlers and the rest is history. As we said, you know, this time around we're going to bring some guests in to have a chat. Mix it up a bit. And today we have the fantastic Esme Louis-James. Hey, mate. Hey, Hello. Now, we've already talked about your hero, but now it's time for a howl. But I can, I, I, I can, see, <laughs> Mr. I, I can see Mr. Classically Trained here on the other side. Might, might want to jump in. Well, no, it's, look, Esme's going to bring in... Uh, someone who I, yeah, very, very interesting figure from the ancient world, from ancient Greece. Um, you think he's a howler. I might think he's more of a hero. But let's let, come on, Esme, tell us what, <laughs> who you've got and yeah. why you've got him. So we are going straight back to ancient Greece uh, for this one. Yeah. And I want to talk about uh, the inventor of cynicism, uh, Mr. Diogenes. Yes. <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, for, for those of you who, uh, like me, had not really heard of Diogenes before, we're talking born around about 412-404 BCE. We're not mm-hmm. quite sure. We do know that he died in 323 BCE, but we'll get to that later. That's right. So, yeah, he's a direct contemporary of people like Alexander the Great. Yeah, And as Esme said, he's known as the founder of the school of cynicism, which, of course, also went on to the Stoics as well. Yeah, but also I came across one article that described him as history's first troll. <laughs> I love this. Oh, well, I mean, this is exactly why I've marked him as my howler, because I think um, this man was a disruptor. And oh, that, yeah. that's, you know, what his uh, entire philosophy was about. It's mm. about being outrageous. It's about being offensive to initiate change and drive conversation. He drove conversation. Well, that's it. <laughs> he drove a lot of conversation. I mean, didn't Plato call him Socrates gone mad? Gone mad, yeah. exactly. And, and I think that's why I'm, I'm a bit worried to call him a howler. I think, isn't that why he should be called a hero? Because he was a disruptor. But come on, Esme, tell no, us all about it. Maybe so. Maybe maybe we're here to reclaim the term howler. That's yes. what we're doing today well, through the figure of Diogenes. Well, let's get up to it. Yeah, he had a bad start. For us, yeah, he uh, did. Uh, kicks off his father was a banker. Yes. <laughs> Never a good start. <laughs> but but then there's the theory too that you know, the first time his name actually gets mentioned was he and his dad whether it's just him or whether it's him, he's mm. just his dad or the two of them together, mm-hmm. they basically ruin the Synopian economy with forgery. Yeah, so they debase the local currency. And this is in Sinope, it's on the Black Sea coast. So it's an Ionian colony. And yeah, obviously the Greek world at the time stretched all the way into Turkey and up into the Black Sea. So and I think it's quite interesting because he is a bit of an outsider. Mm. Yeah, we talk about him in Athens. We talk about him in Corinth as well. But we've got to remember he is very much a, a not part of the establishment, mm-hmm. yeah, even when he's born, um, but even before he gets um, kicked out and exiled for, <laughs> for stealing all the <laughs> currency or, or debasing all the currency. And funnily enough, that's very much a bit like Alexander. Yeah, he's, mm. he's also a non-Greek in the Greek world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Diogenes is uh, your staple of an outsider in the inside world mm. who make the best critics. Mm. You know, he, he he's in the middle of the action and he's never a part of it. And he kind of stakes his identity on that um, that's separation. Right. He, he starts off in Athens, doesn't he? You know, and that's... And 
<laughs> probably the reason why I like him the most because he really <laughs> gives it to Plato. Um, you know, yeah. He, so, so you are not a fan of Plato. I'm not a not a big fan of Plato. I'm afraid. Oh, no, no, you're always Republican. No, no. He he takes all the glory, but only because he writes all the books. You know, and so so I think compared to Socrates, um, Plato, you know, was was a junior, and and Diogenes is, is a direct rival. But not, yeah, some might say superior talent. Interesting. I like I like that uh, Plato is kind of framed as this like fan fiction writer. Well, is that where the dichotomy was? Because Plato and Diogenes both argued over their various interpretations of Socrates. Of Socrates, that's right. Yeah, because obviously he was a direct tutor to Plato, and Diogenes was his rival. Mm. Yeah, but here's other thing. Now you might back me up on this, mate, because you know you did write the book Kinky History and your <laughs> podcast called Kinky History. Don't forget, kids, if you don't know what to get mum for Christmas, Kinky History. <laughs> um, but you know, whereas you, know, you said Plato wrote all the books, well, um, Diogenes was more into the show and tell. He is into the show and tell. And to be fair, I, you know, Socrates was as well. As this conversation is going on, I'm kind of seeing a lot of connections between Socrates and Diogenes. Mm. You know, uh, Socrates wasn't interested necessarily in writing uh, the history of his story. He was interested in doing and acting and making it happen. And, you know, mm. Diogenes' entire philosophy is about the simplistic life and uh, being part of nature and going away with luxury and yeah. Socrates is walking around barefoot for most of his life and you know getting drunk on wine and saying yes. we just got to live in the here and now and not worry about everything oh, okay look someone's got to say this okay <laughs> Diogenes used to poop in the street he did weed in the street and used to masturbate in Gratifying. the street he did <laughs> and I do like what he said about actually um uh, having a tug in public. Yes. If only it were as easy to banish hunger by rubbing my belly. Yes. It's such a fantastic quote, isn't it? But the thing is, though, the reason why he does all this, he always says, you know, that Heracles, you know, Hercules is mm. his hero, and it's all about virtue by action, not mm-hmm. by thoughts. Unfortunately for him, he does actually write books. We think he probably wrote about 10 books. He had his volume of letters. Mm. He also did some stage tragedies. But the thing is, all his books got lost or burnt or thrown away, but probably by, you know, both, you know, by his rivals. So whereas Plato, you know, gets to tell everyone how great he is, unfortunately, Diogenes, all we're really left with is actually anecdotes about him rather than anything he said himself. We don't actually have any of his own work to, you know, to defend himself with. Absolutely. Maybe there's a connection between the hero, uh, Julie, and uh, uh, the mm. Howler here yes. as well. There's a lot of myth and legend. Um, and Diogenes uh, maybe should be heralded by the fact that for a man who said that we need to develop our philosophy and our actions rather than our thoughts, he's actually remembered for his actions and mm. none of his thoughts because we'll never know them. Okay, right. look, I'm really enjoying the intellectual conversation between you guys, but let's not point out, <laughs> even over 2,000 years ago, he would have been a very difficult person to be around. Oh, gosh, yes. Yes. I mean, here's my thing. We still can't figure out to this day, did he, did he live in a discarded bathtub, an old wine barrel, or or even a jar? Yeah, a big jar, they say, don't they? To be fair, with the way the rental crisis is going, it's <laughs> yeah, not yeah. bad. <laughs> okay, maybe he was just ahead on the curve. But he did, yeah, he did uh, practice what he preached. You know, mm-hmm. There's that great story that he, he saw a young peasant boy drinking water out of his hands and he immediately throws away the only possession he has which is his wooden cup he says if a boy doesn't need a cup I don't need a cup either so at least yeah, he, yeah I would say he put his money where his mouth is but of course yeah, he disdained money as well the other strange thing about him too is um, a little bit like yeah, we were talking before about myth and fact mm-hmm. we still don't exactly know how he died no now there are three theories my favourite is the overwrought toddler version which is he died holding his own breath <laughs> Uh, then there's the infection after a dog bite, mm. 
mm-hmm. or by eating some dodgy raw octopus. <laughs> now, either way, they're pretty spectacular deaths. Diogenes has uh, actually originated sashimi. <laughs> well, 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 actually, that's the thing. Because I'm, I'm looking at them going, you know, I've eaten raw octopus and it's delicious. <laughs> but then again, I've eaten raw octopus in an era of refrigeration. Yes, I'm not, I'm not too sure that they uh, prepare it fresh on the day in a nice piece of sushi. <laughs> All I will say about his death, Mike, yeah, he does say he leaves instructions, doesn't he? Yeah, he mm-hmm. says, cast out my body, let it be food to the wolves and the dogs outside the city walls. And that yeah, really is the reason why I quite like him, um, because unlike a lot of his contemporaries, yeah, there's no artifice. No, no. I mean, and th- th- there's no artifice. There's no uh, care necessarily for any kind of authority. You know, one of my favourite Diogenes stories, um, you know, we were talking about the gift before, but Alexander the Great mm. used to come to his yes. wine tub slash bathtub. We don't know which one it was <laughs> at, the <time. laughs> at the time. And, you know, was attempting to, like, offer him gifts and everything as yes. part of, you know, a, a kind of reflection on the fact that he was doing some great work for philosophy. And <laughs> all Diogenes has to say is, uh, move out of my way you're blocking my son that's right yeah alexander he comes in giving it the big i am doesn't he they're in corinth now and he says oh look at me i can give you anything you want dodge and he goes yeah, yeah well, i'll just take just just you moving out the you way move. please <laughs> I, I want a bit of sunshine yeah you know that takes that takes a hell of a lot of uh courage in one's own philosophy and values to <laughs> and to be fair alexander does appreciate it doesn't he because he then says doesn't he you know, if i were not alexander then I'd wish to be Diogenes, which, of course, Diogenes then replies, if I were not Diogenes, then I'd still like to be Diogenes. Diogenes. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of that brilliant quote when Palmerston's talking to the French ambassador in the 18th century, and the French ambassador says, yeah, he's at this stage... For once, yeah, the French are actually quite pro-British, pro-English mm-hmm. at the time, and the French ambassador says, "You know, you know, Palmerston, if I were not a Frenchman, <laughs> I would like to be an Englishman." And the Palmerston said, "Yes, you know, if I were not an Englishman, I'd like to be an Englishman too." <laughs> okay, so we're looking back at Diogenes now, and well, I think we've sort of come halfway. Mm-hmm. Yes, y- yes. Um, let's agree on one thing. Yes, a very out of the box thinker. Yes, a, 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 a special the talent. <laughs> out of the top, exactly. Someone out of step with the people around him, mm-hmm. but still not someone you'd like to sit next to on a train. No, no. I mean, this man famously, uh, even though he lived in his bathtub, uh, didn't really believe in bathing, and no. when he did, he no. did it That's in fair. the middle of uh, the plaza <laughs> yeah. uh, for everyone to see his little rubber tub tub moment. <laughs> So maybe we'll say he's a howler with heroic qualities. I mean, he also um, took a shit in the middle of a theatre one yeah. time. Well, and in Plato's lectures, which is another reason why I like him. But there you go. <laughs> yeah, I must admit, the theatre one, we've all wanted to do that. No, I mean, the bathrooms were too fast. So. <laughs> Look, guys, it's been so much fun talking to you. Esme Louise James has been our guest today. <laughs> and don't forget, her new book, Kinky History, is out. And also to the Kinky History podcast, same place you find us. Please have a listen. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute howl. <laughs> all right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming. Lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore. Each with their very own hero and howler. 
In the next episode, we talk to broadcasting legend and co-host of the Subway Senior Podcast, Ian Rogerson, about Teddy Roosevelt and did his uncle actually know Australia's most infamous fascist? <laughs>